Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege of gathering together on an evening like this as family, united in faith, Father. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, for that is the reason why Jesus went to the cross, for it was for freedom that he set us free. Thank you for reminding us that living in this world amongst these societal norms and standards isn't always easy, Father. Thank you for reminding us that even so we have been yoked with your Son. Thank you for health. Thank you for whatever peace we've received. Thank you for those people in our lives that reciprocate in faith so that we might be encouraged, as your word says in Romans 1.12. We are encouraged, each of us, by each other's faith. Thank you for these moments, Father, to break bread, the very bread of life. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality even. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we're midstream. Uh, when subjectivity becomes the cultural norm, part four, uh, if you haven't caught the previous three lessons, please do yourself a favor and do that. Um, it'll be worth your time. Uh, I want to do something we aren't always given the opportunity to do. To start off, um, I want to begin reading a whole chapter in the Word of God. He doesn't usually give us this space, but tonight he wants us to. And it makes sense. Once you read it with me, you'll understand why. Sort of will knit together a lot of the things that we've been studying uh, at a high level. So I suppose, at least in part, that the Spirit does such a thing, like read a whole chapter, for one primary reason, but also one secondary at least. The primary, of course, being that it will open up our minds and prepare the soil for this lesson. But the, second, uh, the secondary, which is one of many, is to remind you of how very sweet, how very sweet simply reading Holy Scripture actually is. Just at face value. And reading for context. Not, you know, verse hopping not bouncing around looking for this doctrine or that doctrine, just reading it as if you would read a book. Some like to say, and I would happen to agree, that the entire Bible, even the hard parts, is a giant love letter. So why not read it? And I think when he does this, that's a secondary thing. Of course, he's preparing us for um, some more specifics this evening, but... Don't forget that secondary point, that just reading your Bible, there's a certain sweetness to it. So relax and let's enjoy this together. Go to Ephesians 4.1. Ephesians 4.1. I mean, the whole book of Ephesians is just so enlightening and so refreshing. Uh, if you ever have in one of those weeks or something like that, where you just need um, sort of a pick-me-up, Read Ephesians. It won't take you very long. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, 
How? In love. In love. Amen. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he descended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children. This is where we uh, looked at this on Tuesday. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. That's been a calling on our hearts now for a long time, something the Spirit's been amplifying for a while. But speaking the truth, always in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, that's all of you, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Now think about our message title this evening. Just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They are the very epitome of much of what we're studying. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Again, that's that same calling. Speak truth, always in love. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good 
so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Isn't that a wonderful read? There's so much that is in Ephesians 4 that we've actually gone to over the past few months even. If you recognize so much of that thing, let everything you do be done in love. Uh, including, like what we saw in uh, what 1 Corinthians um, uh, 16, uh, do all that you do in love. But that also includes standing firm, acting like men. Sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's the rod. Sometimes it's the staff. Either way, it's no less love. On Tuesday, we read a portion of this. Go back to verse 14. This will get us situated. I just wanted to read that entire. It's such a lovely uh, passage that I figured we'd read the whole thing. Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So what stood out was the phrase, but speaking the truth in love. As the Spirit's been highlighting, tough love is still love. There's been a lot of tough love from this, from this pulpit for years now. But it's no less love. I would argue it's harder in many, many ways to give tough love than it is the opposite. Up here on the board. <clears throat> Either way, love tells the truth. Your strong language may be the greatest show of love some people have ever witnessed in their life. This came out on Tuesday. That's almost verbatim from what Scott said. Your strong language may be the greatest show of love some people have ever witnessed in their life. In other words, a person may have a, just a slew of enablers in their lives. And nobody tells them the truth. Nobody says, wake up. You're out in left field. What are we doing here? Nobody has the love to do that. So love also has a strength component to it, if you haven't figured that out yet. And it always tells the truth. Pure love can't help but tell the truth. So your strong language, maybe, maybe you're relating to this right now. Your strong language may be the greatest show of love some people have ever witnessed in their life. Quote, but speaking the truth in love, we had to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Did Christ ever hold back? No. No, he flipped over tables. He called people a brood of vipers. Why? Because that's what they needed to hear. They may not have wanted to hear it, but that's what they needed to hear. He was also the most tender person, bouncing babies on his knee. The lion and the lamb, right? It's not just the lamb. It's the lion and the lamb. Telling the truth is fundamental to true love. And let's face it, just by the very nature of man, most people are abiding in the flesh which means the truth is always going to sting them because they're the antithesis 
of love. They have selfish love, not selfless love. They don't have godly love. They have selfish love. So pretty much anything you tell that person in true love is going to sting them. And they say, boy, that's like tough love all the time. We'll straighten up then. Right? I mean, people have this contentious thing with their parents sometimes. If the parents have integrity, they have to hold the line. But the kid's always in trouble or grounded. Well, then shape up. I'm not going to move because these are the standards in my house. So if you think about it, the reality, the presence of so much tough love is actually not a function of the person doling it out, but the person who's receiving it. Because they're the ones that are opposed to God, who is love. So telling the truth is fundamental to true love. So let's synthesize from when I kind of alluded to this just a moment ago. What is true love? Well, Jesus is God. God is love. Jesus never lied. That's true. Jesus is God. God is love. Jesus never lied. Telling the truth is fundamental to true love. True love cannot lie. Did Jesus ever lie? No. Who embodied love more than he did? Nobody. Nobody. So guess what? True love, in its purest form, nobody in here has it. Not all the time, anyways. True love cannot lie. This is the very impetus for this sidebar series we are on that's titled, When Subjectivity Becomes the Cultural Norm. Why? Because nobody seems to love anybody enough anymore to tell them the truth. Nobody seems to have the strength anymore to tell their neighbor, that's wrong. You're wrong. How do I know? Because God says so. Even in the churches, nobody has the strength to challenge the social norms, the societal norms, even in churches. And you know how I feel about American churches now. They're disgusting. They're way off the mark. Without true love, freedom suffers. Societal norms have gotten so ungodly, which you can say is unloving, because God is love. Societal norms have gotten so ungodly, unloving, that it's intolerable if we even question factual errors. We are called haters, or, quote, intolerant, for loving like Jesus. I often wonder that, don't you? Like, what would Jesus say if he walked down the street of America? Probably the first thing he would say would put some clothes on. Respect your parents. What are you thinking? You know, all the things we hear, revilers, disrespectful parents, you know, all the fleshly things that we see in our society right now. I often wonder about that. What if Jesus really did walk down the mall? I really do think one of the first things he would say would be put some clothes on. But whatever. We are called haters or intolerant for loving like Jesus. In the end, it's freedom that suffers, especially in the souls of the lost. And just as a friendly reminder, for perspective's sake, true love loves the sinner but hates the sin. You're not, you're not hating on somebody because you say that's a sin. And maybe you should consider dropping it or maybe you should consider confessing that thing and getting right with God about the whole ordeal. Let me show you some scripture. That's not hating on the sinner. That's loving them enough to confront them, which is often what? Contentious? Uncomfortable? But that's how true love 
responds in those situations. It loves the sinner enough to approach them as necessary. Don't become some, you know, creepy person. You know, where you become the Christian police like some people do. But we always hate the sin. So let me just give you an example. Here's something I posted on uh, social media the other day. I think most of you, I think I brought this up on Sunday. I don't know if I actually quoted it. How do we know children are born sinners? Because we don't have to teach them how to lie. That's how. Children lie. Did you eat the cookie? I think I'm going to get in trouble. No. I certainly didn't teach my kids to lie. But they lied anyways. My parents didn't teach me how to lie, and guess what? I lied anyways. So guess what? We lie. We're sinners. Children are born sinners. Now, here's the thing. Suffice to say that I had multiple people tell me, wrote like publicly, that children are not born in sin. And these were so-called Christians. These weren't atheists. These were people that abide by a certain... Actually, two separate religions. Multiple of them told me that children are not born in sin. And I was flabbergasted, actually, that they would, that, I don't know how, I don't understand how that works. I mean, what do you need Christ for? I don't know. We know this is a lie. In fact, the truth is that every human being is born into the bondage of sin, which, of course, is the opposite of freedom. So ask yourselves, why would the father of lies perpetuate such a lie, say, in the family structure. Because this is what it came down to. And by the way, both of them were mothers. You're already in the realm of subjectivity and emotionalism. Don't you talk about my kid. Oh, shush. I'm not talking about your kid. Settle down there. Why don't you go read your Bible instead of picking fights for ridiculousness? So why would the father of lies perpetuate such a lie? Well, for many reasons. However, in keeping with this point about children, at least one reason is as follows up here on the board. If children were born sinless, just suppose, then why would they need discipline? I get the sense that these mothers didn't want to discipline their kids, which would really make them what? Enablers. This is part of the reason why Proverbs 13, 24, train up a child, spare the rod, for the child type thing. Proverbs 13, 24 is offensive to them. If a person buys this lie, they won't discipline their children, which ultimately bolsters the child's flesh while leaving them in bondage. Now, how can that be love? So you're, you're actually training your child up, telling them they're perfect. Somehow, without sin, you're actually reinforcing the flesh, and you're leaving them in bondage. You're, you're adding glue to their feet. It's going to be harder to extract them with the truth later on. So this is how subjectivity works. Almost, and by the way, almost every person who has ever... Now, you, may, you can take this any way you want. I'm not going to make any conclusions about it other than, say, one word. Almost every person who has ever publicly taken offense with the things I write was a woman. And if it wasn't a woman, in the rare case it wasn't a woman, it was what I call a feminized man. One of those things. You know one word? Tashuka. Tashuka. Remember, as I've taught you several times in the past, 
that sin's desire, which is what teshuka means, is to dominate you. To dominate good things, intrinsically good things from God. That's sin's desire. This is subjectivity at its best, whereas objectivity is something very different. Up here, objectivity crushes teshuka. Objective thinking isn't concerned about dominance. It simply orients to God's will and marches on. Sin's desire is to dominate godliness. But since it's not strong enough, it turns to subjectivity. It might wrangle for a little while. But then you'll notice, if you ever get into it with these people, they depart from truth. And that's what happened in that little case that I told you. I started throwing scripture out there, and they were like, whatever, you believe whatever you want, and I'll believe whatever I want. And it's like, wait a minute, that's completely subjective. You can't, you, you know, like I wrote today, God's not a democracy. We don't hold votes. By popular vote, God's different today than he was yesterday. That's not how God works. But that's subjective thinking. These people are not actually interested in truth. They want to dominate. They want to inflict their fleshly desires, their own lusts on the rest of us. And what happens is eventually they all group together as a form of collective evil. And then it becomes a societal norm. And then folks like us are over here in the minority. And then it's just oppression almost. It's, it's attack. You're a hater, you're intolerant, you're this, you're that, get with the times. The issue under consideration in these lessons has been, well, what happens when society as a whole rejects objectivity? Because that's where I would argue we're at, even as Americans. What happens when the entirety of society rejects objectivity? Well, one repercussion is that folks like us who are diligently clinging to objective, godly truth are left to fight an increasingly difficult battle. I mean, a hundred years ago, Jesus would have walked down, if they had malls, you know what I mean? If he walked through the market, he probably wouldn't have had to say, first out of his mouth, put some clothes on. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That wouldn't have had to, even a hundred years ago. It takes a lot more strength to be objective than subjective. It's easy to be subjective. Let your emotions fly. Take a few extra sips of wine. Next thing you know, you're dissipated. You've got really no self-control because that's fruit of the Spirit, right? You've got no self-control. Next thing you know, you're a subjective mess, probably picking fights, which is why some people don't want to take you to parties anymore. Bill. <laughs> Party animal. It takes a lot more strength to be objective than subjective. Stated more practically, we might also consider up here on the board, good and evil has become subjective. This is what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit, that good and evil has become subjective. For the true disciple of Christ, this presents a certain challenge. If even the authorities support subjectivity as the norm, which is what's going on in our own country, these are the people we elect, in a democracy, it undermines a disciple's ability to even evangelize. Now, you can chew on that in your own time because there's a whole string of pearls behind that. 
For the true disciple of Christ, this presents a certain challenge, where good and evil has become subjective. Well, you say it's good, but I say it's not. Well, you say it's evil, and I say it's good. You have your God, I'll have mine. You have your way, I'll have mine. Okay, that's cool, but don't tell me how to think. That's where the problems come in. Subjectivity is uh, scarcely or uh, hardly tolerant. For example, given I just brought authority into this picture, some might ask, a good, you know, this is a fair question. If all authority is from God, why would he ordain bad authority? If all authority is from God, why would he ordain bad authority? Did you read the blog titled, This is How Judgment Works? I won't look. If yes, then you already know the answer to that question. This is how judgment works. Why would God ordain bad authority? Answer, as a judgment on men. For example, King Saul, 1 Samuel 8, 4-22. That's why. Why would God ordain bad authority? The answer, as a judgment on men. So while we read through this passage, keep in mind what we've already pondered concerning man's affinity for societal norms and his desire to shift away from God's will, his commands even. Go to 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. I don't want you to just take my word on the point on the board. I want you to see it for yourself. In Scripture, so you understand what the Spirit's saying. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Why does God ordain bad authority? It's a judgment on man. That's why. 1 Samuel 8, 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, Samuel's a prophet, remember, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now just as a background, God did not want this for his people. He wanted to be their king. Present tense. He said, I'm your king. You don't need a king. But we want to be like everyone else. We want to adopt societal norms from the ungodly nations that surround us. You get it? That's the context. Okay? So Samuel is kind of scratching his head. But the, things, the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So Samuel knew already that this was not the will of God for Israel, which was to be like other nations. Verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Aha. So here we see what's really going on. He said, go ahead. Give, in other words, give them what they're asking for. And don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up, out, up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, however, 
you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. God knew that they'd choose Saul, obviously he's omniscient, but he wanted them, he wanted Samuel to warn them. In other words, you ever heard somebody say to you, be careful what you ask for? This is what God was saying. But obviously for sovereign reasons, he wanted to teach them this lesson. So you already have the answer to the question up there on the board. Why would God ordain bad authority as a judgment on man? Do you want that? I'll give it to you, but I'm telling you it's going to be bad. So God ordains things like that, and it's his sovereign right to do it, to do so. doesn't mean he's the source of evil. It means he'll allow it. Isaiah 45, 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Huh. So we must accept the fact that God ordains evil to exist in this world. And in many ways, this allowance becomes the basis. This was the blog, you remember. This is how judgment works. This allowance becomes the basis for judgment because grace always precedes judgment. So this allowance becomes a basis for judgment. In other words, it's a gracious act to let people continue on in evil in order that the final result, their own demise in many ways, become a point of learning or, dis or uh, discipline even. After war I mean, if you've been a parent, you know sometimes you've got to let the real, you've got to let the kids out for a little bit Watch them make bad mistakes on their own, if you're not enabling them. Watch them make mistakes on their own, bad ones, and see what happens. And let them learn their own lessons. Sometimes that's what's in order. And our Father does that. So after warning Israel of what they were asking for was not freedom but bondage, they persisted, and this is what went on uh, in these, the next few verses, Samuel did his job and warned them solemnly about what they were requesting. Go to verse 18. We're just skipping a little bit for the sake of time. I'm just proving this point. So Solomon did his job. Verse 18, Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Remember who chose this. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Oh. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And you could fill in the blanks there. That's the way that it always goes. No, I hear you, Holy Spirit. I, I got your conviction, but I don't want that. Because you know what? I want a girlfriend, or I want a boyfriend, or I want a new car, or I want a new job, or I want all these ungodly things that you're telling me to stay away from. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to listen. Okay, I'm going to let you go then. Go ahead. Obtain those things by world standards. Join into the societal norms. Chase after the carrot. Go be tolerant of every last thing. Ignore my commands and see what happens. That's what's going on. It's just ancient. <laughs> this people wanted to be like other nations. Wanted a king. Can you imagine that? They have the king. What did God say? I want them to realize that I'm king. And I fight. I go ahead of them 
in battle. Read Jeremiah, right? I go before you in battle. You've got nothing to worry about. Remember David? That was his whole thing. Who's going to taunt the living God? <laughs> that was his whole thing. Who succeeded, obviously, Saul. But I'm going off. Um, that's what he was saying to these people. Be careful what you ask for. Look at verse 20 again. So that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, as if they didn't have one. It's insulting. Verse 21, Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, repeated them in the Lord's hearing, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city, and so on and so on. Ultimately in 1 Kings, if you were to read it, we see that the Lord's warning from verse 18 actually comes true. They start whining. That their poor choice becomes their very judgment. But you see, grace preceded all that. God kept doing and doing, and he was patient, and he sent Samuel to warn them. Nope. Grace precedes judgment. So their poor choice becomes their very judgment, becomes a curse instead of a blessing. And as a form of discipline upon said judgment, they suffered. And this is how judgment works, my friends. This is what the Spirit's been trying to teach us. And it's been woven into our lessons and even the blogs. This is what he's trying to teach us, that grace precedes judgment. If he refuses grace, then you're open to judgment. If he refuses grace, you're open to discipline. This is a perfect example. This is how judgment works. I mentioned this on Sunday, too, <clears throat> up here on the board. When man refuses God's grace, it becomes the very basis for judgment. Think of the cross. How does anyone get sentenced to the lake of fire? Because they refuse Jesus Christ. Just think about that. But that's not it. That's not the end. There's a lot of grace that mankind refuses, even believers. And judgment comes after that, if it's refused. For example, if you are miserable, malcontent, lacking peace, etc., etc., it's because you've refused God's grace. Refer reference there, John 14, 23 to 27. Go to John 14, 23. <clears throat> if you are miserable, malcontent, lacking peace, etc., it's because you refused God's grace. Don't blame God. And remember, Scripture tells us that God doesn't tempt people. God's not the author of temptation. So if you've strayed from His peace, you've strayed. God didn't lead you away. He might have allowed it, like we just saw. But He did not author that temptation because God is not the author of temptation. So says Scripture. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, excuse me, nor let it be 
fearful. In other words, do you see it? You see the grace of God in action? I mean, look at Jesus Christ said, I give you my peace, but I don't have it. Then you need to look in the mirror and say, why not? What part of his grace are you not accepting? I went on a little rant on Sunday, did I not? About this grace and that grace and this grace and that grace. Some of you actually haven't read the blogs, which is ridiculous. Some of you don't go to the Bible studies for no other reason other than you just don't feel like going which is ridiculous. All this grace coming from one little ministry, and many of you don't take all the pieces of it. And you're the same people who sit and stew at home, or stew in your car, or stew in your, in your job, and you're wondering why you're malcontent, and why you got to self-medicate all the time. Why is that? Well, first things first, are you taking all the grace that God gives you? And are you a conduit for it? Because Jesus Christ himself said it's more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Are you a miser? Do you keep all the grace? I'm not talking about just money. Money is the easiest one to relate to, but that's not the only one. Are you a miser with your time? Do you have certain abilities that you won't offer up? And I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about in general. Because you're a, because why? Because you're stingy with God's grace? You just want me, 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 me. What is it? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. All I know is that let's check out all that stuff. Check out all that stuff in your soul first before you go complaining to God that he's not delivering on his promises. Because if you're miserable and you don't have his peace and all these other things and you're the same person who refuses all kinds of grace, well, didn't I just teach you that? I mean, I could stop right now. Did I not just teach you that in Scripture? What happens to the person who refuses God's grace? Eventually, they get disciplined. Eventually, they don't have the blessings. The, the things that could be blessings turn into what? Curses. That's tough love right there a little bit, right? I mean, I've, I've kept my voice, so I haven't been spitting all over my lovely screen anymore tonight. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. But this is how judgment works. If you want to understand why you're lacking certain things... It's because of you. It's because you've refused his grace. Huh. Jesus left his disciples with some pretty, some pretty powerful words, such as up here on the board. Matthew 10, 28. <clears throat> Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, if God's going to judge you, he's going to judge you. If man judges you, who cares? This is the most severe case, of course. You don't want that judgment. You don't want the hammer to come down and say, you're sentenced to hell. But the method, the pattern of judgment, grace preceding judgment, is the same for everyone. So who should we fear then? Whose judgment should we fear? That's what he's saying. So do you fear man's judgment? Or do you, like the, the blind man getting kicked out of the synagogue? Do you fear, or the, the scared parents? Do you fear man's judgment or do you fear God's judgment? So what do you think he was trying to convey to his audience in Matthew 10, 28? He was basically referring to the same judgment the Spirit's been hovering around all week. In other words, if you choose to abandon objective godliness for the sake of subjective societal norms because you fear the judgment of your peers, etc., then you must gird your loins. 
for the judgment of God. And don't, this is the one, I don't know, I'm going to teach on this someday, but this bugs me a lot. What about Romans 8.1? There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Don't be a jackass. That's a judicial issue. That's a positional issue. Anybody ever hear, anybody going to raise their hand and say they haven't been disciplined by God in their life? Then that whole argument's toast. People are so twisted on the grace of God, on the judgment of God. I'm digressing. Just know that if you choose subjective societal norms over objective godliness, you will be under God's judgment, which means you're going to be disciplined. So gird your loins. And frankly, if you make that choice, let's face it, God's judgment, man's judgment, you're stupid. Because God's got a much bigger fist. Not that he uses a fist, but you know what I mean. He's got a much bigger hand, a heavier hand than any man. What our lessons have included is a fair warning regarding worldly judgment. And that came up on Tuesday also. Go to John 15, 18. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, up here on the board. Judgment by the world. The Lord was willing to suffer for telling the truth. Galatians 6, 9, 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, 2 Timothy, pretty much all of it. Are you willing to suffer this way? This is the most worthy kind of suffering for his name's sake. John 15, 20. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. There you go again, bingo, another perfect example of grace before judgment. He said, I came to them and they refused me. Now they've got no excuse. You see, judgment is upon them. Why? Because grace preceded it. He, I came to them. Now they really don't have an excuse. That's the principle. There it is again. It's all over the Bible. Grace always precedes judgment. Verse 23, He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Hmm. Again, up here on the board, the Lord was willing to suffer for telling the truth. Are you willing to suffer this way? This is the most worthy kind of suffering for his name sake up here on the board as encouragement galatians 6 9 let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary in other words again what's still on the table is 
Whose judgment do you fear more? Do you fear the judgment of man, your peers, those that you work with, your friends? Oh, man, my reputation, my social life. Or do you fear God? Because the Bible says the smart person fears God. If God is for you, who can be against you, right? If you stand up against ungodly societal norms, just expect to be hated. This is what history even has shown us, especially in the biblical account of it up here on the board. We saw this this past week, challenging societal norms. We know from biblical history that people who function outside of societal norms suffer in ways ranging from dismissive disagreement to murder and everything in between. Severity is a function of context. One manifestation of this is something that we've already considered. We might call it subjective bullying. Subjective people who tend to be ramped up with emotionalism tend to bully others with emotional tactics. They, may, they're not, they don't care if they make sense or if their facts are correct. They're just trying to bully you. They want you to shut up. They want you to stop. Because you might stand for truth. And that truth, like I said at the beginning of class, stings to someone who's disoriented to God. Subjective people tend to bully others with emotional tactics. Since objective consideration of facts is thrown out, they often resort to character assassination. Anybody ever, be, ever been character assassinated? I have. It's probably happening like right now. Who knows? Out of those 5,000 unique visitors, one of them probably doesn't like my, me. One of them's probably, I don't know. Who knows? Who cares? That's the whole point. Bullies realize they are weak against the facts. So they resort to non-factual tactics to make their case, quote-unquote, regardless of how low-handed or vile. Most of you can relate. We have many examples in the Word of God. Look at what they did to the poor blind man. I mean, come on. He's blind. He gets healed. He's like, oh, this is the best. You're out. What? What do you mean? I'm out. You're out. Because we don't like the facts, you see. Now, if you're willing to... Uh, you know, give up the facts and stop touting that it was Jesus, then you can stay. He's like, I'm not going to lie. Then you're out. This is an innocent guy. Now he can see. And for those of you, just FYI, for those of you who like to make a study, quote-unquote, of society as a whole, the Spirit gave you this principle. Uh, and as Scott mentioned on Tuesday, it's not the easiest thing to conceptualize which is something that Satan's counting on, but nonetheless, up here on the board. When subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm, societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted, which means put aside, godliness. And then this is the part that's hard to conceptualize, and I'm just doing the best I can to teach it to you, um, instability becomes the accepted norm. So this thing becomes the accepted norm. You know, I've, off, I've uh, taught, I've used the term in the past, dysfunction junction. You, the norm in your life is dysfunction junction. You feel uncomfortable when everything's quiet. Anybody? I know of at least one person, multiple people in here that I, I wouldn't name them, but where dysfunction junction w was the norm 
for most of their life. And when it was hard for them because God was settling them. God was bringing stability. The more of the word you have, the more stable you are, right? He brought stability into their life, and they were, there was this thing that they had to sort of, that was foreign to them. The norm was dysfunction junction. The norm was chaos. And then God says, I'm going to settle you. And they were uncomfortable with it for a time. That's how goofy it is, how backwards it can get when something is persistent. And so that's what is going on even in our own society. Instability becomes the accepted norm. Everybody's chasing something, have you noticed? Everybody's chasing something. What's better? Oh, I, got, I finally got it. You know, I finally got it. Woo! Okay, what's next? You know what I'm saying? The newness wears off. Okay, what's next? The awful example is, hey, this is my wife. Okay, five years, good. You're done. You're, you're getting old. I need a new model. See you later. Yay! I need a new model. See you later. That's going on. And that's normal. That's normal. You want to hear a couple of statistics? I'll average the two statistics because I want to get all into the cultural and the racial thing. But I would say in, on average now, 50%, uh, I think it's, yeah, 50% of births now are to single mothers. What, what, what? And nobody's saying anything. Nobody's saying anything. Do you understand? What happened to the family structure? It's out the window. And nobody's upset. Do you know what I'm saying? It's one thing if it's a mistake, but it's not even just mistakes anymore. It's like the norm. That's what I mean by instability becomes the accepted norm. Now more than ever, we need the infallible word, the rock. You see, with the word, we have all the facts we need. And because we have all the facts, then we can function objectively. The more trained up in the word you become, the more stable your life becomes. This is due to the objective nature of truth in the soul. We move from subjective living to objective living. Subjective people despise this and in many ways are jealous. Why? Because your house is on the rock. Your abode is on something firm. You have conviction. You have wisdom. You have confidence. The world despises you because you stay still. And while the waves are crashing against you, you're not moving. Sometimes you do, but you know what I'm saying, relatively speaking. And that bothers people. In order to drive this point home for our case as Americans, we have considered the following, and I've really been trying to keep my own, you know, political thoughts at bay, because that's not what he wants me to teach you, but these individuals exist, these so-called social justice warriors, and they're basically stand, if you actually net out everything that these morons stand up for, it's literally, you could literally say anything against Jesus, anything that Jesus stood for, it's like the, the uh, rebellious teenage kid. 
what do they do? They don't, they, all, they wanted, all they really know they want to do is rebel against their parents, right? It doesn't matter what. You said this, then I'm going this way. You said go that way, then I'm going this way. You said to do this, then I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. That, they don't care what they're doing. They just care that they're rebelling. That's what, our, that's what our society is like now. That's what these morons are, these social justice warriors. And Jesus Christ, if you actually net it all out, if you look at all the, the agenda that they use, that they follow, it's literally the Antichrist. That's what the Bible calls these individuals. It's not just one. The Bible says there's many Antichrists. It's plural. If you stand literally against everything that Jesus is, consider yourself an Antichrist. And that's what these morons are. In light of undeniable truth, these individuals depart wholly from objectivity, abiding in subjectivity as tyrannical haters of truth. That's right, tyrannical. Yet oddly enough, they call the victims, often us, haters. We're haters because we won't accept their societal norms. Because it's not truth. So why would I accept something that's not godly, that's not truth? So let's finish up. We've got about five minutes. Let's finish up our study of the blind man who continue to school those trying to uphold societal norms. We're going to skip forward, go to John 9.31. I'm going to go quickly because we've got a pretty good handle on this passage. Wonderful passage. I hope you uh, have found this out. It's a wonderful passage, probably one you never thought of that we would use or you would suspect that we would use for something as contemporary as uh, you know, social justice warring. <laughs> but it's the same, right? Solomon said nothing new under the sun. John 9, 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. <laughs> All I said was, what happened? This Jesus guy made me see. It's a miracle, right? You're out. If you don't stop saying that, you're out. So they put him out. They character assassinated him first. You were born entirely in sin. You don't know what you're talking about. Now get out. What do you think is happening to biblically sound Christians now? Our country would just as soon throw us out. That's the sadness. I'm not saying every part of the country. I'm saying where the country's going. Probably the majority, let's face it. They would just as soon have us ejected. So there you have it. Call them names, then mark them for a life of social death. All because he received God's grace and was honest about a miracle. Now, yeah, I'll touch on this since we've got a couple of minutes. I want to drive this home. And just remember, when I teach what I'm about to teach, I'm not judging anybody. Um, I'm not interested in judging anyone. It's just one of the big uh, ticket items that these social justice morons harp on. So remember, our example is that you stand up for truth. You, in this case, proclaim a miracle. You get character assassinated and thrown out and suffer a social death. That's our example. Okay? 
This is no different than a person who stands up for the miracle of, say, life in a mother's womb. It's no different than a person who stands up for, say, the miracle. Say it with me. The what? The miracle of life in the mother's womb. A literal miracle takes place at conception. It's a miracle. And those who abide by today's social norms call those of us who cherish the miracle of life haters, and they put us out. You imagine me going to some social justice warrior gathering, some pro-abortion rally. Can you imagine what they would do to me if nobody was looking? If I just spoke what the Bible has to say on the subject? I might not just be put out. I might be knocked out. Who knows? I don't know. But they're pretty vicious, these people, these so-called social justice warriors. Now, this brings us back. I love how Jesus responds to this man's excommunication. Look at John 9.35. We're going to get back to the abortion thing in a second. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And what? Finding him, Jesus sought him out. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So first of all, what did Jesus do? Jesus found him. So here's the guy who gets cast out, complete evil, cast out for telling the truth, and Jesus specifically finds him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, Does this sound familiar? Does John 9.39 look familiar to anybody in here? Anyone? For this is how judgment works, blog, hint, hint, anyone. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. That was the crux of the blog titled, This is How Judgment Works. So that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see, who see, excuse me, may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sins remain, or your sin remains. They thought they had the light, but were in darkness. That's the point. Um, yeah, I think I have to end there, believe it or not. We're going to get back to the example with the miracle of life in the womb. But let me give you this before we close. One last one. I didn't realize how quickly time went by. Just because, this has been the crux of the lessons, just because a certain idea has gained momentum in society, like it's okay to, to, to uh, rip the arms and legs off an unborn child and throw it in the trash and say you're protecting the mother's life. What about the, what about the life of the child? But the law says it's okay. So what would the law says? What about the life of the child? What happened to the miracle of life at conception? What happened there? We just throw it in the trash? What happened? But because our society says it's okay, because society says it's okay, and by the way, is, uh, is it 4000 a day? 
it's either four thousand a day. no, I think it's four thousand. It's either four thousand a day or four thousand. I think it's four thousand a day, in this country. It's either that or a year. But I, I think it's four thousand a day. Is it? It's really high. It's awfully high. But either way, one's too much, right? Are we to forget? Just because something becomes popular, just because the feminists in this world don't want to take responsibility for themselves anymore, don't want to follow Jesus' commands, anything but Jesus, they say. And you better not call me a murderer based on some antiquated book. You better not do that thing because we will crucify you. And that's exactly what's going on in our beloved country. I know that's a sour note to end on, but that's the whole point of these lessons. We need to hold our ground. We need not to be bullied by subjectivity, by emotionalism, because that's exactly what's going on. And that, unfortunately, seems to be what's running our country nowadays. So with that said, we are three minutes over. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together and just thank you for being real with us. We know that it's all out of grace and love that you teach us these lessons, that you give us these lessons, that the Spirit Himself enables this gift and enables the conviction in the souls of the hearers. Father, we're so grateful for such supernatural facts. Thank you for the opportunity to stand up for Christ as soldiers, as ambassadors. Even though we are not of this world, we are certainly in it. Even though we're persecuted, we shall persevere. We ask for traveling mercies as we each go forward this evening. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.